verses 11 to the end. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of our household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all in here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Says, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, 
the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the word of the Lord. We just pray for Steve. Thank you, Lord, for um, the word that you've given Steve for us today. And just want to pray that you uh, anoint him with your spirit as he speaks to us today and that you open our hearts to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Angelica. Well, as Gareth said, this is the fourth of our values that we're speaking about today. And you may be quite on board with loving God. I think that's pretty uncontroversial. You, you, you may be on board with making disciples and seeking the kingdom, but healing the city, surely that is a rather extravagant goal. And maybe it's arrogant, maybe it's just unrealistic. How on earth are we meant to be involved in healing the city? And yet I'm sure, like me, as you go around the city, whether it's the city center or uh, the suburbs, you recognize that there is a need for healing. You may recognize some structural things which need changing, but you may also be very familiar with families across the city where healing is needed, relationships where healing is needed, and individuals whose lives are blighted by addictions or by other issues which need the healing of Christ. And we as Christians have a vision of a city at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 2, which talks about the heavenly city, the city, the new Jerusalem, where there is a, a river flowing from the throne of God, bringing life. And on either side of the city, of the, of the river, there are the tree of life. And that tree bears fruit every month. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And so I believe that we are rooted in the center of this city to pray and work towards its healing. But where on earth do you begin? Well, I'm going to show you a little video. It's, it's four minutes long, uh, and this is only going to be a short talk. So this is what you're going to remember. But it's a video not about the healing of a city, but about the healing of a much bigger area, Yellowstone Park in the United States. Thanks, Anna. One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles 
all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years. That the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes and as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. Here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. So I have a very simple thesis to put to you today, which is this. If wolves can change our whole landscape, like the Yellowstone National Park, 
simply by being wolves. Christians can change a city simply by being Christians. And I want to just show how the, show the impact of Christians on one city by looking at Acts chapter 16. It's probably a passage that you're very familiar with. You've probably heard these stories in Sunday school. But it's, it illustrates the fact that Christians, being Christians, can have an impact on a whole city. So let's just follow it through. The first person to be impacted is Lydia. Paul and his companions, his small team, which included Luke, because this is one of the we sections of Acts where it's narrated uh, in the uh, first person plural. His His small band of followers impacted the city because they went through the direction of the Holy Spirit. Paul had been praying and he had a vision. And in that vision, a man from Macedonia the province of Macedonia, said, come over and help us. So they crossed into the province of Macedonia where Philippi was. And interestingly enough, it was a man that Paul saw in his vision. And yet all the people that they dealt with initially were women because they went to the place of prayer outside the city. There was probably not enough men to form a synagogue, but there was a place of prayer near water to be used for Jewish ritual washing. And there they found a group of women, God-fearing Jewish women. And Lydia was a convert to Judaism. She was the first person who was impacted by the message. She was a person of peace, we would say. Someone who was open and receptive to what Paul had to say. And it says that God opened her heart to receive Paul's message. And so she was baptized. She and her household. That was the start. And it very often begins like that, doesn't it? With individuals responding to the good news of Jesus and them changing. But I think very often what we fail to do is we, is we fail to recognize when somebody comes to faith that they are not just an individual. They are part of an ecosystem. They're part of a family. They're part of a household. They're part of a network of friends. And when Lydia came to faith, so did her household. The next person who was impacted was a young slave girl. This person was described as having a spirit of divination. In the Greek, it's, it's, she had the spirit of a python, which is a strange saying. But the python was the guardian of uh, the oracle of Medusa. And so it's probably used to describe someone who has the ability to tell the future. It's also a a word or a phrase that is used to describe a ventriloquist. So whether this woman was a charlatan or had a genuine psychic power or was spiritually oppressed, as Paul believed, she she made a lot of money for her owners. And so this woman needed liberation. She needed liberation from whatever it was that gave her the power to tell the future. And she needed liberation from the people who were exploiting her, having that power. And in a deliberate echo of the way in which demoniacs address Jesus in Luke's gospel, this woman goes around and she berates Paul and she says, as Paul and his small band go 
as is their habit now, to the place of prayer, they, she says that these men are servants of the Most High God and are telling you how to be saved. And Paul is not looking for this. This is not a strategic move. Paul is someone who loves God. And his love for God takes him to the place of prayer with other people who love God. But as he encounters this woman, he gets so annoyed that he turns and he addresses the spirit and commands the spirit to leave her. And he, he does immediately. There's an immediate transformation in this woman. And so this is not just the healing of an individual this is a healing of an individual who's part of a system that exploits people. There are systems that depend, there are economic systems that depend on people being exploited. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the nighttime economy of our city depends on people getting into alcohol dependence. And so there is healing when this woman is liberated from this spiritual power and when this woman is liberated from the economic system that had exploited her. Of course, this provokes a response. Whenever profit is threatened, there is a response. And so the owners of the woman take, her, take Paul and his accomplices to the magistrates. This is quite a public forum, it's in the marketplace, and the magistrates execute Roman justice as they see it, or is it? They have Paul and his associates beaten with rods and they're sent to the prison. You know the story. They're sent to the prison, they are put into the most secure part of the prison. Their, their feet are in stocks. And in the middle of the night, as they are singing and praying and the whole of the prison listening to them, there is another, a sudden earthquake so violent that the chains which were uh, held to the wall were, were released. Now, when the prison officer that comes down, his behavior to me suggests that he's already come across Paul and he already has heard about the liberation of the young woman who had the ability to tell the future. Why? Because it's dark. It's dark. He doesn't know what's gone on. But he assumes that these men have been liberated. Why? Why would he make that assumption? Well, this woman has told everyone they are servants of the Most High God. And then, when he goes into the prison, and he's told by Paul that they are all there, his question is, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why that? Why does he say that? Well, because the woman has been going around the town saying that these are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way of salvation how to be saved. And so this man comes to faith. Now let's just pause a minute. Let's just think about what future this man's household would have had had he followed through 
on his intention to commit suicide. Some of you may have experienced suicide in your families or may know families where suicide has been committed. It has a devastating effect. Can you imagine the future of this household had this man taken his own life? They would have lost not only the financial support that came from him being the town prisoner, but also they would have had that wound running through their lives. Instead, this man and his household are again baptized and become believers. I think back to my great-grandmother who was on her way to the cinema one day, to the matinee, in a, on a windy day in Birmingham, and her hat blew off, and it blew into the entranceway of a little chapel, and she could hear some singing, and some women were inside having a women's meeting. So instead of going to the cinema, she went in and sat at the back, and she heard the gospel. She gave her life to Christ, as then did a number of her children, including my grandfather, who then passed on his faith to, to my father, who passed on his faith to me. What a different future we might have had had that not happened. What a different future the prisoner, prison officer's family would have had had he committed suicide rather than come to faith. And I think we should really be thinking about seeking and praying for men. Because, you know, we have quite a few women in our church whose husbands are not Christians. And it is very difficult for them. And it's very unlikely that especially boys will follow in the faith if their father does not. We need to be reaching out to these guys, befriending them and standing with those women. And so another household is healed. But the interesting thing I find at the end of this passage is this, that rather than just being walking away from the prison when the message comes from the magistrates that they can be released, Paul takes his ground and he says, no, we are not just going to walk meekly away from this prison because I am a Roman citizen. And these magistrates beat me, beat my companions without a trial. This was not Roman justice. We demand justice. We demand that the magistrates come to the prison and escort us away. Now, why was he doing that? It was not just because he had personally been offended. Paul was making a stand because he was wanting to protect the fledgling little community of Christians that was now in that city. Because you see, if justice is miscarried, it doesn't just affect the individual. There is a systemic issue. These magistrates were clearly used to just um, beating people without due process. And when Paul makes his stand, the city is healed a little bit. So, healing starts to come to Philippi, this most Roman of cities. It was a place where Roman soldiers loved to retire to. It was a little mini Rome 
And yet, the feet of that great empire were made of clay and they were starting to crumble because as Paul wrote to the church at Philippi later, Christians are part of a different empire. Let me find what he says from Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship, he says, is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they may be like his glorious body. And so this little group of Christians were part of a bigger empire. And of course the time did come when the very emperor of Rome himself declared himself as a Christian. And Christianity became the official religion of the empire. Now some would say that's when the rot set in. And maybe it was. And there had to be another process of renewal. As Antony in Egypt went into the desert because he wanted to live a life which was about loving God. And he went to seek God in the desert. Spent 20 years in a, a deserted Roman fort. People would toss bread over the walls to him. And around the outside of the wall, there grew a little camp of people who wanted to be like Antony. Loving God, putting God first. And so he made disciples. And they sought the kingdom. And gradually then, there was another process of healing and renewal as monasticism spread across Europe and the rest of the Christian world. I believe we're at the start of another process, another time, where God is seeking people who will love him, who will make disciples, who will seek the kingdom. And through them, there will be transformation. No one sat down with the wolves of Yellowstone Park and said, now chaps, we're just going to do a workshop on landscape transformation. No one taught them to use a JCV. They were just released to be wolves. And the landscape was healed. And so it is with us. We can overcomplicate things sometimes. But if we are people who will love God, truly love him, make disciples, seek his kingdom. I believe our city can be healed.